Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome back to Agrac. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I am really thrilled because for today we have our first international guest on the ACRAC podcast, and I am going to introduce her in just a moment. First, I want to remind everyone that another exciting ACRAC first is coming up in April. On April 24th, we'll be having our first ever live ACRAC podcast here at Johns Hopkins in front of a live audience. If you're interested in coming to that, just email us, ACRAC at ACRAC.com. It's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to have a guest from the University of Maryland Shock Trauma Center, as well as guests from Hopkins, and it is going to be a really fun, entertaining night, and we should all learn a lot. Now, let's turn back to today, because as I said, I have with me a fantastic guest, and I have with me Barbara Versick, who is an anesthesiologist from Belgium. Now, Barbara graduated about five years ago um, from university in Belgium and then worked at a couple of really large hospitals in the Netherlands, and she's now on staff at uh, a hospital in Belgium. Uh, she also has a PhD and did that on the topic of pectoral nerve blocks for breast cancer surgery. She's a regular speaker and trainer at international conferences on the topic of thoracic wall blocks, and I think this is going to be a really interesting and educational episode. Barbara, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Um, I should have asked you before we started recording, but I'll ask you now, did I pronounce your last name correctly? How do you pronounce it? You did it perfectly. I was wondering as well, but you did it just perfect. My name is Barbara Verzik, so that was quite the excellent English pronunciation. Good. Thank you. I'm glad I did that all right. Um, so let's start very basic. Um, and, uh, you know, while this is something I think it's going to be really interesting for a couple of reasons, but one is that I have a feeling that... Um, you know, you your practice may be significantly more advanced than a lot of practices here in this country in terms of, uh, and by that I mean in the United States, uh, in terms of some of these blocks. So we'll want to be, you know, make sure we explain things. But let's start even really basic. What When we say thoracic wall blocks, what does that mean? What are they? Yes, well, that's a good question to start, Chad. So thoracic wall blocks are a group of regional anesthesia techniques that target larger areas of the thoracic wall. So, for example, the breast region or the lateral thoracic wall. And just to clarify, if we say thoracic wall, we mean the area from the skin until the ribs and the muscles in between. So these blocks achieve analgesia through the spread of local anesthetic within the facial planes in between muscles. So rather than targeting a specific nerve structure, uh, these blocks will anesthetize multiple small nerves that run through these facial planes. So is this similar to, uh, when we talk about the abdomen, to a tap or a transversus abdominal plane block? That's what it sounds like to me is sort of putting local anesthetic into fascial layers between muscles that then spreads and can kind of catch nerves that run in that area. Exactly, exactly. So the tap block is a good example of a facial plane block of the abdominal wall. Great. All right. So 
Um, just out of curiosity, let me ask you, you know, you obviously have been very interested in this, um, including doing a PhD in the, in the area. What got you, uh, you know, initially interested in this um, and why did you focus on it? Well, actually, when I was in my second year of uh, residency, I went to the NYSORA conference in New York and there, um, there was a topic of uh, cancer surgery and what we as anesthesiologists could do. And um, then we had the idea that a paravertebral block could treat about anything. It would be good against cancer recurrence. It would be good against chronic pain. It would solve about anything. So I was really impressed with the impact that we as anesthesiologists could have on the topic. So I went back to my um, uh, teaching hospital and I told my um, supervisor, I was like, I heard about these paravertebral blocks for breast cancer surgery, and we should really do it. And he said, well, a paravertebral block, that's quite difficult to perform. But have you ever heard about the PEX block? Maybe that's something we could do. And that's how it all started. Interesting. And then you really took it from there. Well, that's great. Yeah, we implemented it. We did a little trial and then a bigger one and a bigger one. And that's great. And so we'll definitely get into that. Um, well, so you mentioned the paravertebral blocks. So let me ask you. What is the difference between uh, what I'll call these new kind of fascial plane techniques and quote unquote old, more neuraxial techniques? Obviously, we, when we think about neuraxial, we think about spinals and epidurals, but then also you mentioned paravertebral blocks, which are kind of a, maybe a modified um, neuraxial technique. Uh, you know, what, what are the difference, differences between the old and the new? Yeah, so to best understand how a facial plane block differs from other regional anesthesia techniques, it's maybe good to just take it a step back and discuss how regional anesthesia has evolved over time. So how we eventually ended up with these thoracic wall blocks. So if you'll just give me a minute to explain, like in the early days, regional anesthesia only existed of neuraxial techniques, as you said, a spinal or an epidural or a paravertebral block. And with these neuraxial techniques, local anesthesia is injected near the spinal cord. So we have both somatosensory and sympathetic nerves being targeted. And this results in anesthesia of the lower half of the body in case of a spinal or in analgesia of several thoracic or lumbar dermatomes in case of an epidural. So for neuraxial techniques, the needle is inserted in between the vertebra and it's based on anatomical landmarks. And the right depth of the needle is based on a physical response. So the backflow of CSE for the spinal and the loss of resistance for an epidural technique. So we've have, we have had these techniques for quite some time and we all still value them in today's clinical practice. And then a next step was the introduction of plexus analgesia. And with plexus techniques, we inject local anesthesia near a plexus, well, the brachial plexus or the lumbosacral plexus. And these plexus blocks provide analgesia of the upper and the lower limb. So initially, anesthesiologists inserted a needle based on anatomical landmarks and the right depth was based on the generation of, um, well, more often than not, in my opinion, painful paresthesia. So uh, luckily for our patients, plexus blocks have improved significantly by the introduction of both the neurostimulator and later the ultrasound machine. Because as you know, the neurostimulator creates a current on the tip of our needle. And so when the needle reaches the nerve, this will give us a motor response. So we no longer need to generate this paresthesia. And the ultrasound machine made it possible to have a, um, a live visualization of our nerve, our needle, um, the potential um, arteries and veins that are in the neighborhood. So this gave a great improvement in the safety of the performance. 
Now, over time, ultrasound machines got better and better and created better and better images. And this allowed us to expand regional anesthesia again with what we call facial plane blocks. So in other words, we're back again at the level of the trunk, but this time we're away from the spinal cord. And as you said, as is the case for with the tap block, we're at the level of groups of individual nerves. So facial plane blocks differ both from neuraxial blocks and from plexus blocks. And the main difference between neuraxial blocks and facial plane blocks is that with facial plane blocks, we only target somatosensory nerves. So there's no analgesia of the internal organs. And the main difference between plexus blocks and facial plane blocks is that with facial plane blocks, we cannot visualize the nerves of interest on ultrasound, or at least not yet. So therefore, we visualize the facial planes in between muscular layers in which those nerves run. And that's why they are called interfacial or facial plane blocks. So obviously the neurostimulator is of little use for these techniques as we cannot visualize targeted nerves. And thoracic wall blocks, our discussion topic of today, is an example of such a facial plane blocks. So that sounds, that's a great uh, kind of history and summary. Thank you. Um, it is, you said obviously that one of the uh, things you don't get is that internal organ um, effect. On the flip side, there are obviously some advantages to these fascial plane blocks as, as compared to the more neuraxial type techniques. Um, so what are that? Why, why are we even, you know, if, if it doesn't quite get you the same coverage that, a, let's say, an epidural or a, a paravertebral block would get you, why are we doing these? Why, are we, why is this a hot topic now? Why are we talking about thoracic blocks at all? What are the advantages? Well, there are, in my opinion, well, there are a few reasons. And let's start with that um, modern day surgery demands, um, demands thoracic wall blocks or facial plane blocks. Because modern day surgery involves at least two trends. It becomes less and less invasive. And there's this emphasis on early mobilization. So a minimally invasive surgery no longer requires maximally invasive analgesia techniques. Because previously, if you had a lung tumor, you required an open thoracic surgery with rib removal or rib spreading. And of course, this would generate a lot of postoperative pain. And so patients required a maximally invasive analgesia technique, such as a thoracic epidural or a paravertebral block. But nowadays, such a procedure that it's often performed by a video-assisted thoracoscopic surgery. So it's minimally invasive. And we should adapt our postoperative pain management accordingly. For example, for video-assisted thoracoscopic surgery, we could introduce uh, thoracic wall blocks as the erector spinae plane block or the serratus block. Because, for example, the early mobilization, I don't know how it is in the United States, but in Belgium, patients with epidurals are not always allowed to walk around freely. And that's not even including the urinary catheter that makes walking more difficult. And that is not right. the case with thoracic wall blocks. There's no sympathetic blockade. There's no need to place a urinary catheter. And there's no reason why people could not, should not walk around. But except, well, yeah. yes. And next to this, this surgical side, there's, of course, there's the anesthesiology side. Now, today, I think that we as, as anesthesiologists are ready to implement these new techniques to have a broader spectrum and more possibilities depending on the type of surgery. And we are ready because we have now the equipment available and we are skilled to perform it. Because I don't think there, well, it's difficult to find an OR nowadays that does not have at least one ultrasound machine. 
So equipment is no longer a problem. And not only are there the machines, we are trained to use them and to perform these blocks. There are ultrasound workshops on every regional anesthesia conference, and we're also learning our residents at least the basic blocks. And even now in the, the last years, if you're no longer a resident and you can't go to these conferences, there's excellent educational material available online on YouTube, Twitter, uh, on the society websites. So I think from the side of the anesthesiologist, we're ready to perform it. From the side of the surgeon, there's this, um, there's this demand for new um, analgesia techniques who are tailored to their new surgical approaches. And there's also, of course, our patient. Many patients do not qualify for these previously discussed maximally invasive analgesia techniques. For example, if you're an anticoagulated patient with rib fractures, you're not eligible for an actual technique because there's the risk of an epidural hematoma. And if there's a patient with a lung abscess that requires surgery, you're also not eligible for a neuroactual technique as there's the fear of an epidural abscess. So all these patients are eligible to receive a thoracic wall block. So in other words, anticoagulation or infection status or no contraindication for thoracic wall blocks. Yeah, that's a huge advantage. Yes. And even if I may say one thing more for our patients, even when patients do require or are eligible for a neuroactual technique, Sometimes they do not receive it as it is seen as too time consuming and too demanding. And that's, for example, the case, or at least in Belgium, with oncological breast surgery. Because if we see the prospect guidelines, then patients should receive a paravertebral block. But in our country, that is not the case. And now in the latest prospect guidelines, I was happy to see that the PEGS block is considered a good alternative for the paravertebral block. And this is a technique that can be performed really quickly after induction, before incision. And we see that, for example, in Belgium, that the, the introduction of PEGS block in clinical practice has been great. So more people can benefit from it. It is better tailored to the new surgical approaches. And last but not least, in the, in the recent year, we have now the scientific proof that these techniques work and that they have a benefit on opioid consumption, on patient satisfaction and on pain scores. So I think now is the time to talk about them and to implement them. It sounds right to me. Very exciting stuff with a lot of advantages, as you said. So where are these being being done? What kind of surgeries are we doing them for? Well, we're not only doing them for surgery, actually. They're used in the emergency medicine. They're, of course, used in the OR. And they're used for chronic pain treatment as well. In the emergency care, I think the most popular use is probably the rib fractures in the anticoagulated patient, which is the perfect example. And uh, they can't receive an epidural. There is a, a demand for good analgesia. And instead of the epidural, we could perform a continuous erector spinal plane or serratus block. Now, the biggest uh, use of them is, of course, in the operating room. And their thoracic wall blocks are mostly used for breast surgery and for thoracic surgery, and more and more also for um, spine surgery and minimally invasive cardiac surgery. So to give you some examples, Apex 2 block is of course often used in oncological breast surgery, but could also be used for minimally invasive cardiac surgery or for the implementation of a portacat um, of a, um, or any, any small device in that area. <laughs> yes. And then, um, so an erector spinal plane block or a serratus block with or without the catheter can, as we said before, perfectly be used for minimally invasive thoracic surgery. And it's also good to use as a rescue technique, for example, for open abdominal or thoracic surgery, just in case if the epidural placement was unsuccessful, uh, an erector spinal plane technique can provide relief, pain relief as well. 
Um, and then the last thing that I said was for um, uh, multi-level spine surgery. That's something that we introduced recently with very good results as these patients often require a lot of opioids already before they go into this surgery. And then afterwards, there's even a higher demand of opioids, but not always with a, uh, with a good effect on the pain relief. So these patients, they get a bilateral single-shot electrospinic pain block, which provides great pain relief. The last thing that I wanted to say was just for chronic pain treatment, as it is also being used now for uh, chronic pain after breast surgery or um, after thoracic surgery. Yeah, absolutely. And so with chronic pain, is it a, uh, you know, because you would think it wouldn't, a single shot wouldn't be helpful. Um, do people get, how, is, how does it work? How do you address the chronic pain? Yeah, so the chronic pain is the newest um, uh, um, development. So it's really in the initial phase. And what we see is that um, uh, you should always add corticoids so, uh, to the mix, to the local anesthetic mix. Um, and what we see is that in these cases that have been published, that it is a single shot technique that is being used and people get good results for about three to six months. And then they need to come back for an, uh, another injection. Okay, interesting. So let's, you've mentioned a few different blocks. Let's just talk about some of the most frequently used thoracic wall blocks. And I think those would be the PEX2 block, the serratus plane block, and the erector spinal block. So let's take me through each of those and kind of what you think people should know uh, about each one. Yes. So I just also want to say that there will be a poster that is added to the show notes so that there will be visual imaging on how to do this and some YouTube videos. But let me walk you through each of these blocks just to get an idea of what it is. So that'd be great. A PIX2 block provides analgesia of the anterolateral side of the breast and the adjacent axilla. And it's performed on the anterior side of the thorax. So anteriorly, we have three muscles of the thoracic wall that are of interest. And these are, and I'll always uh, name them from the skin to the ribs. These are the pex major, pex minor, and the serratus muscle. And with ultrasound, we can visualize these muscles. And uh, to do so, we position our ultrasound probe underneath the lateral part of the clavicle at the level of the third and fourth rib. So we get an ultrasound image with this, these three muscles. And we will insert our needle in plane from medial to lateral. And we will first perform the deep injection. The deep injection is underneath the pectoralis minor muscle. And then we will retract our needle and perform a second injection in between both pectoral muscles. And just for those of you who are interested, the deep injection will cover the lateral branches of the cutaneous thoracic intercostal nerves from T2 to about T6 and the long thoracic nerve. And the superficial injection will cover both pectoral nerves, so that's the medial and the lateral one, and will run towards the axilla where it covers the intercostal brachial nerve. And this one is very important because the intercostal brachial nerve provides sensory innervation of a large area of the axilla. So it's really important for breast cancer surgery. And this nerve, the intercostal brachial nerve, is made up of two parts. One is a branch from the brachial plexus, and the other one is the T2 lateral cutaneous intercostal nerve. And as you may have remembered, the deep injection of this block covers the T2 lateral cutaneous intercostal nerve. But to have the full intercostal brachial nerve covered, we should add the uh, superficial injection as well. Okay, so you're going uh, one, one injection between the uh, pecs... Um 
minor and the serratus, and then the second one between pex major and pex minor. Correct. If, if you have anything else about the pex two block, please feel free. And then I was going to ask you about the serratus plane block. So uh, I just wanted to add for the pex two block that people will sometimes ask me if they can perform it awake. Of course, you can perform it awake. Um, it's just an intramuscular injection. But as there is no need for a neurostimulator and you can perfectly perform it in the position that the patient is operated in, you might as well do it asleep and uh, spare the patient another injection. Yeah, that makes sense. So the serratus block, which is the second block that we will discuss, provides analgesia of the lateral side of the thoracic wall. And it does so over four to five dermatomes. So laterally, there are two muscles of interest to the thoracic wall. And these are, again, from the skin to the ribs. First, the latissimus dorsi muscle, and then the serratus anterior muscle. So our ultrasound is positioned at the mid-axillary line to visualize both of these muscles. And we can do this at the level of the fourth and the fifth rib, which is often used for uh, breast surgery. But you can also do it higher or lower, depending on the required analgesic region. So we inject local anesthetic in the facial plane underneath or above the serratus muscle. Again, with an in-plane needle technique. I personally prefer to inject underneath the serratus muscle as this is closer to the origin of the lateral cutaneous intercostal nerves, which are our nerves of interest. But if this is difficult to visualize, which might be the case in very skinny persons or just in very, or uh, on the opposite side in very large persons, you can also inject above the serratus muscle. So the serratus block covers the lateral branches of the thoracic intercostal nerves. And if, as you may have noticed, the deep injection of a PIX2 block and the serratus block have a bit of overlap in analgesic region. Certainly if you do it high at the level of the fourth or the fifth rib. However, the serratus block can be performed at different levels. So the lower you go, the fewer the overlap will be. So this thoracic wall block offers a wider range of possible coverage of the lateral thoracic wall. And that's why it's good for video-assisted thoracoscopic surgery, as you can adjust the level at which you perform the technique to the insertion sites that the surgeon has used. Great. Okay. So that sounds like a great option for those. Um, and then you'd mentioned a couple times the erector spinae block. Yeah. Tell me about that one. Yes. So the erector spinae block could provide analgesia of a full hemi-thorax over, again, four to five dermatomes. And this one is uh, performed on the posterior side of the thorax. So we had the pex block anteriorly, serratus block laterally, and the erector spinae plane block now posteriorly. And posteriorly, we have, uh, again, three muscles of interest. And those are, from skin to ribs, the trapezius, the rhomboideus, and the erector spinae muscle. And the erector spinae block is performed three centimeters lateral of the spinous process, because there we, we encounter the transverse process. So instead of from skin to ribs, it should actually be from skin to transverse process in this case. So we inject local anesthetic underneath the erector spinae muscle at the level of the transverse process, lifting the erector spinae muscle up from the transverse process. And this block will provide analgesia of the cutaneous branches of the intercostal nerves before they split up in a dorsal, a lateral, and an anterior branch. And that's why we have a full hemithorax that can be covered with an electrospinal block. So for upper thoracic okay. surgery, it's, uh, it's performed at the T45 level, and for all other indications, it's the level at which you would perform an epidural analgesia. Okay. 
Um, and even though you're now closer to the spinal cord, you're still far enough away. You don't worry about anticoagulation and all that. No, because actually what you're doing now is an intramuscular injection. So any uh, patient that can undergo surgery can undergo an intramuscular injection and can receive this block. Great. So you've mentioned some of the indications, obviously some of the surgeries that these are used for, additional things you mentioned like chronic pain, um, uh, fractures in the emergency department. Are there other indications that we haven't discussed? Um, if so, let me know what those are. And then tell me if there are any contraindications to these blocks. Yeah, so I think we, we discussed quite a lot of the indications because actually the indications are analgesia of the thoracic wall. And depending on which side or which part of the thoracic wall that you need, you will select a specific thoracic wall block. And all, well, we discussed some indications like uh, minimal invasive cardiac or thoracic surgery, breast surgery, uh, rib fractures, uh, minimal invasive uh, or uh, uh, multilevel spine surgery. Um, so I think for now, these are the most, well, the most used um, techniques or the most used indications. But I'm sure that in the future, there will be more indications to come. It's interesting, actually, that there are not that many contraindications for thoracic wall blocks. And I think the most relevant are refusal from the patient or allergy to one of the used products. Great. So you've mentioned um, that there are two ways to approach these. You can do a single shot technique or uh, you can do an indwelling catheter and do a continuous technique. Um, tell me a little bit about those. When would you choose one or the other? And, you know, does that affect your indications or contraindications? Yes. So a single shot technique is, of course, easier and it's less time consuming than a catheter technique. And there's also less risk for infection. So a single shot technique is used for those indications where the need for opioids would be in the first 8 to 12 hours after surgery, such as breast cancer surgery or the insertion of a portacat. And the single shot is also useful when we definitely want to prevent infection, such as when prosthetic material is being used, for example, in this multilevel spine surgery or minimally invasive cardiac surgery. Now, if the analgesic effect would have to be prolonged, it's always possible to perform another single shot technique in these cases. Now, a catheter technique is used for the indications where the opioid need would exceed 8 to 12 hours. Now, just to clarify with opioid meat, I mean that this pain problem cannot be solved with non-opioids like acetaminophen or NSAIDs and maybe a little bit of opioids. Indications for a catheter technique or, for example, video-assisted thoracic surgery or rib fractures. And in those cases, we can use both a serratus block or an erector spina block with a catheter. Great. So you can put a catheter in serratus, uh, serratus plane block and erector spinae block. How about a PEX-2 block? Can you do a catheter for those? Well, a PEX-2 block has two levels of injection, uh, an upper one and a lower one. So already, or you would have to do two catheters, which is a bit um, difficult, or um, right. uh, you would have to choose one or the other. Now, as the main indication for now is uh, oncological breast surgery, and a catheter is there not, not really necessary, it's not that used in clinical practice. Maybe in the future, if this is more used for minimally invasive cardiac surgery, and we see that patients do require um, a longer analgesia, then it should be talked with the, with the surgeon if this is a possibility or if they would like to, well, prefer not to place a catheter as it is close to prosthetic material. But of course, the intramuscular planes are far away from, an, uh, I don't know, a minimally invasive uh, valve that has been placed. So the future will have to show for the PIX block if this is an option or not. But for now, the indications do not really require it. Okay. 
That sounds good. So tell me about the local anesthetic uh, type that you use. What do you use and how much of it? Yes. So um, I always use long-working local anesthetic, so ropivacaine or levopipivacaine. And the dosing is, of course, based on the weight of the patient. So for ropivacaine, it's uh, 3 milligrams per kilogram max without exceeding 225 milligrams in one dose. And for bupivacaine, that would be 2.5 milligrams per kilogram without exceeding 175 milligrams in one dose. Now, I must add that there are actually, as far as I know, no plasma concentration studies for thoracic wall blocks. So these are all theoretical numbers. The volume is very important for thoracic wall blocks as we need to open the facial planes in between the muscular layers. So the larger the volume, the larger the area that will receive analgesia. So generally, we use a volume between 20 and 40 milliliters. So if necessary, you can achieve this by uh, diluting your uh, local anesthetic until you have the required mm -hmm. volume. And so, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So you'll basically, uh, if you have a smaller person and therefore fewer milligrams that you can use, you uh, might dilute that uh, dose down just to get more volume. Yes. Okay. And then do you use any kind of adjuvants? Do you add anything to the local anesthetic? So, um, facial planes do not have uh, opioid receptors. So, contrary to nerexal techniques, it's not really useful to add opioids in the mix. And that's also one of the reasons that these techniques are to be used as part of a multimodal analgesia regimen. And they are opioid sparing, not opioid free. So, sometimes patients will still need some opioids IV. Now, the effect of uh, corticoids, such as uh, dexamethasone, has been shown to be as, as effective IV as true NLA mixture for regional anesthesia. So all our patients with the regional anesthesia technique receive dexamethasone IV. Um, personally, I do not use adrenaline in the mix, as this has not yet been studied well for facial plane blocks, but maybe future research, research might change your mind on that one. Okay. Interesting. So you give IV dexamethasone, but don't mix anything else in with a local anesthetic in the, no. um, in the actual block. Okay. Yes. Um, and then you mentioned this a little, sort of what to expect in terms of analgesic effects. So, you know, you said that each of these blocks can cover a certain number of dermatomes and that, you know, you for a single shot block, you could expect between eight to 12 hours. Are there other things to keep in mind? You said they're opiate sparing, not opiate, you know, um, uh, completely uh, opiate free. In other words, they're, they're not going to be like a spinal where you have no feeling. Um, so you may still need some, but they should be opioid sparing. What else do you expect from these? Yes. So, so indeed, facial plane blocks are opioid sparing. So they should always be used as part of a multimodal analgesia regimen. So we use it with acetaminophen and NSAIDs. And if you have a single shoulder, it will indeed last 8 to 12 hours. And the catheter technique will, of course, last as long as the catheter is in place. Now, for catheter techniques, they are best used with an intermittent bolus program. And by that, I mean that the spread of local anesthesia will be larger with a large bolus every so many hours than with a continuous infusion. And if it's done this way, they result in very good analgesia. Now, you must be aware that their effect is of course, based on the spread that is reached. And therefore, there might be more inter-individual variation in the analgesic effect, than, uh, analgesic effect excuse me, than with other regional anesthesia techniques. Sounds good. All right. So um, when we talk about doing these, obviously, it's, you know, you're an expert at them. You can describe them and make it sound easy. I'm sure it's not easy, <laughs> at least at first. So what does the learning curve look like for people who are starting to learn how to do these? 
I promise you that facial flame blocks are easy to perform, and uh, they're easy. <laughs> they're easy because of three reasons actually, and so you'll you'll uh, you'll agree with me. It's it's performed on superficial structures, so already I think we can all palpate our own ribs. So the space in between the skin and the ribs, it's not that deep. So you have good visu- visual visualization with ultrasound. And these are almost always in-plane techniques. So the full needle is visible in this uh, in-plane technique, making it already easier to perform as well. And our target is a facial plane. It's not just one nerve bundle, it's a whole facial plane. So thoracic wall blocks actually do have a steep learning curve, certainly for people who already have experience with ultrasound-guided regional anesthesia techniques. Some say uh, see one, do one, teach one. I would be a little more cautious. I think... um, 10 performances should be enough for a regional anesthesia expert to execute the technique with, with rather good results. And actually the same goes for a novice. It's, it's a good block. Uh, it's an easy entry block for a novice, but they should first uh, acquire the knowledge to use ultrasound and to perform an in-plane needle technique of any kind, of course. Yeah, that makes sense. And what kind of needle and probe uh, are people using for these? Is it the linear probe? Is it a curvilinear? What do you use? Yeah, so as they are superficial, almost always it's a linear probe. Um, the only exception to that would be the erector spinae, uh, erector spinae block. In, uh, in some patients, the transverse process might just be too deep to visualize with a linear probe. So in that case, a curved probe will generate a better image. Now, the cutoff between a linear and a curved ultrasound probe lies around the transverse process depth of about 4 centimeter, which is, if I, if I do this math correctly, one and a half inch in uh, the United States. And, um, yeah, that sounds, that sounds right. But I admit I, I would have to look it up. <laughs> I think it's about, about one and a half inch. So, and for the needle, I almost always use just this regular five centimeter regional anesthesia needle. And, uh, just if you have the, the curved probe for a deeper transverse process for the electrospiny block, then maybe an eight centimeter needle would be preferred. Okay. Great. Now you've mentioned, so we would, as you said before, we will definitely have some videos uh, in the show notes so people can actually see these because that's going to be a great way to get a feel for them. But tell me a little, you mentioned before that there, you know, there are some, you've done some studies, there's some evidence for this. Tell me a little bit about the current evidence um, for these techniques. What do we know to support folks out there who want to start doing these? Yes. So actually most of the evidence is for the PEGS block as this technique has been described first. And there are five systematic reviews and meta-analysis now, of which one I wrote myself. And they all showed the same results. So a PEX2 block added to general anesthesia for oncological breast surgery is better than multimodal analgesia without regional anesthesia and is as good as general anesthesia with a paravertebral block. So that's why in the latest prospect guidelines of this year regarding oncological breast surgery, they state that a PEX2 block is a good alternative to the paravertebral block for oncological breast surgery. Now, regarding the serratus block, there's one systematic review and meta-analysis, also for oncological breast surgery. And they say that when you combine uh, a serratus block with general anesthesia, it's almost as good as a paravertebral block. There's, there is some higher pain scores at awakening. So the paravertebral block is better than the serratus block for oncological breast surgery. Now, as recently as this month, together with my colleagues, it's uh, James Jack and uh, Elizabeth McClellan and Kian Jin, we have uh, published a qualitative uh, systematic review on the role of the serratus anterior plane block and the pegs block 
in cardiac surgery, in thoracic surgery, and in trauma. Um, now, for the electrospinal plane block, there are many RCTs, but actually there is no meta-analysis yet. So maybe it's a little early to give um, overall recommendations on that one. Okay. Well, that's great. It's good to know that there's uh, stuff out there already and more, I'm sure, will be coming. Yes. So one of the things, uh, you had this great idea, I love it, that we actually put out on Twitter a request for um, people to submit questions. And so I want to come uh, back and, and hit some of those questions that folks submitted on Twitter and get your thoughts on that. So the first is, uh, someone tweeted, which block do patients prefer, taking into account analgesic effect and the comfort of the placement itself, i.e. sitting upright versus supine, one side, two sides, et cetera. Um, and so taking all this stuff into account, uh, which do you think is the block patients prefer the most? Okay, so I don't know if I'm that neutral in this one, but uh, I'm going to answer it for breast surgery as, as it is the surgery that I know best or the thoracic wall block indication that I know best. Now, for breast surgery, I would say a PEX2 block as the technique can be performed while the patient is asleep and in the position in which the patient will be operated. However, I know that there are very good results with a paravertebral block, which is placed awake in a sitting position it is not my intention to dismiss the paravertebral block, but as a patient myself, if I would be a patient, I would prefer to have a technique where I do not have to feel the puncture, which in many studies now have been shown to be as good as the paravertebral block. So personally, I would argue for oncological breast surgery that the PIX2 block would be preferred taking all these uh, reasons into account. Now, as always, Sounds it great. also depends on the technique that you, you are yourself most comfortable with, of course. Absolutely. All right. Let me ask you another one. So someone tweeted to ask, uh, can you do awake surgery with thoracic wall blocks? And I think what they're getting at there is you can obviously do awake surgery with a spinal. A C-section is an obvious example where the woman is still awake, but is not feeling anything because they have a spinal. Can you do awake surgery with a thoracic wall block? Yeah. So this is one of the biggest differences between thoracic wall blocks and their excuse me, neuroactual techniques, is that you do not have this sympathetic blockade. So they are mainly invented as analgesia and not as sole anesthesia technique. Well, I do myself know of two cases where uh, breast and axillary surgery has been performed under PEX2 block and pe uh, people have required, well, I've asked my opinion about this. And I said beforehand that, well, it's um, it, it can be done if you... Um, add some local infiltration and, if necessary, some conscious sedation as well, as it might provide a solution for patients who otherwise would not be eligible to be operated. But you need to explain it very well to the patient and, um, and be aware that you might need some extra local infiltration or some extra sedation. So can you do it? If really necessary, yes, but I would not recommend it as a first choice. Okay, great. Here's another one. What is the value of a superficial injection of the PEX2 block for breast surgery when the chances of total axillary dissection is are low? Um, so the rate of total dissection needed has diminished tremendously. You know, in that scenario, you think it's very unlikely you're going to need this total axillary dissection. What's the value of that superficial injection? Yes, that's a question I quite like, actually, because it's, it's a good question. One might ask, um, do we need this upper injection? Do we need to cover the axilla? Well, actually, studies also have shown that 
there is a link between the the um, the coverage of the axilla or the amount of surgery that is done in the axilla and the damage to the intercostal brachial nerve. But on the other side, that does not mean that um, sentinel node resection in the axilla cannot damage the intercostal brachial nerve. And as this is two injections for one needle puncture, it's not that difficult to perform the upper injection. And I think it's really important to have good coverage of this intercostal brachial nerve. So both the branch that comes from the um, intercostal nerve have as the branch that comes from the brachial plexus. And to cover both, you need to have that upper injection. So I would still perform it, even if it's just sentinel node dissection, as it can harm the intercostal brachial nerve as well. And that can result in pain for the patient. Great. I think that makes a lot of sense. All right. Here's the next one. For a serratus block, do you need to inject more than one point for analgesia after thoroscopic surgery? And then the second part of this question is, is a catheter useful to extend the duration of analgesia? So the first question is, do you have to do more than one injection for thoroscopic surgery? And the second part, should you put a catheter? Yes. So personally, I always look at the incision and then uh, I choose my location uh, based on the incisions and based on the location of the drain. And I was happy to read on Twitter today that um, that some study has decided as well that it's just important to look at where your incision points are and where you want your spread of local anesthetic. So I inject 20 milliliters at the level of T4, T5, and another 20 milliliters at the level of the thoracic drain, as this is this thoracic drain is the most painful location postoperatively, and I want to make sure that it's covered. Well, one thing is that the pain from the stimulation of the pleura of this drain, that is from a sympathetic origin. So it will not be covered with a thoracic wall block. And sometimes instead of giving a lot of opioids for this specific pleural pain from the drain, it can be useful to ask the surgeon to give some local infiltration around the drain deep enough to reach the pleura. And this will spare you from a lot of opioids. There are studies where, where uh, it's performed single shot, the serratus block, others where a catheter is used. I think that the duration of the analgesia should be um, as long as the uh, thoracic drain is in place. And uh, so that depends a bit on the surgery and on the surgeon. Right. That makes a lot of sense. And that's absolutely my experience is that it's that drain that really, um, you know, that chest tube or drain that really is uh, the source of the most discomfort uh, for a lot of patients. Um, and let me ask you, uh, do you always do these blocks post surgery before wake up, or do you sometimes do them before the surgery after induction? I actually do them after induction before incision. So the patient goes to sleep, then I perform the block and then the surgery starts. Okay. So in that setting, in terms of knowing where the incision is going to be, it, it doesn't exist yet, but you add, you could add. Oh, I'm sorry. No, no. I was talking in my head about a pex block, which I do after induction, before incision. If we do it for a serratus block, I do it um, after the surgery, because um, then you can indeed see where the drain is and where the incisions are. And then I use a combination of both long and short acting local anesthetic so that it works when the patient is awake, but we still have that long lasting effect. Gotcha. Okay. Now, obviously, in that setting, it's not helping you with reducing your anesthetic need during the case because you haven't placed it yet. But then the advantage is you now get a longer duration post-op. Yes. Well, I must say that it depends because sometimes um, uh, to introduce a technique, you first have to do a few cases when the surgeon has an indication and then they see the positive result. And then you go, can go further and implement it for everyone. And then you can 
think about adding it beforehand or adding it with a catheter. So as in every, as in every hospital, there's an introduction time to everything. And uh, we are now at the level that we do it single shot at the end of the surgery and surgeons are very happy with that. And when we are trying to get a more of a, a standardized way of giving it to everybody, maybe beforehand, because as the incisions are almost always on the same location, we can, we have an idea of where, where to perform the technique. And by doing it beforehand, maybe we can spare some perioperative opioids as well. Great. Next question. Is the PEX2 block becoming the first choice for oncological breast surgery compared to a paravertebral block? <laughs> well, um, according to the prospect guidelines, the first choice is the paravertebral block. And I do not want to um, dismiss the position of the paravertebral block. It's just that when you look into well, clinical practice, you see that, well, at least in Belgium, I don't know how it is in the United States, the paravertebral block for oncological breast surgery is not well introduced in clinical practice. And so the emergence of these interfacial plane blocks for the same surgical indication, well, they made that uh, we had the potential to achieve greater patient access to these techniques. So the PEX blocks are actually quite introduced in clinical practice. So um, and, uh, the, if you look... Uh, scientifically, it's the paravertebral block. If you look in clinical practice, I think maybe it might be the PEGS block. Okay. And I would imagine we'll see, you know, this is uh, going to be changing over time. So it'll be interesting to follow that. Um, the next Twitter question is, which block do you think is the most underrated thoracic wall block and should be used more? <laughs> well, I think um, time will tell. I do agree with the reaction on Twitter that we probably will find many more indications to use an rectus spinae block in the future. But maybe the PEX2 block will make a second interest in clinical practice for minimally invasive cardiac surgery in a lot of hospitals. So I think we should talk again in 10 years and see what has happened. Absolutely. All right. We'll be, I'll see you back here in 10 years and we'll talk again. <laughs> Now, this one, you're going to have to do some translating. The question was, is MTP an effective block or is it just a failed paravertebral block? So first tell me what MTP is and then what you think the answer to the question is. Yes, so MTP means mid-transverse process. And I actually called my colleague, Dr. Amit Power for this one, as this is something that he has described um, in great detail. So there's the erector spinae block, which is on top of the transverse process. And then there's the paravertebral block which is neurexial and actually at the bottom of the transverse process, so to say. And in between them, there's the mid-transverse process. So actually, to perform a paravertebral block, you need to get your needle um, through the superior costal transverse ligament. So this is the difference between halfway the transverse process and uh, deep in the transverse process, so to say. And then, well, a lot of people are not performing this paravertebral block. So they decided to just imagine that if we inject halfway the transverse process without, um, without taking into account if we have breached this uh, superior costal transverse ligament or not, could we get adequate analgesia? And what they saw is that actually, yes, you can reach partly the uh, paravertebral space. So if you do a mid-transverse process, it's actually um, a, uh, a in-between block between the um, erector spinae block, which is superficial, and the paravertebral block, which is neurexial. And so it might be a good learning curve to start with the erector spinae block, 
to learn a mid-transverse process block and eventually perform paravertebral blocks. So is it a failed mm, block? Okay. No, it's a way to achieve or a way to learn uh, the more difficult paravertebral block. Okay. Um, and final Twitter question. Um, so 15 mLs of low subserratus block. So a 15 mL injection of a low subserratus block, could that effectively cover post-op pain from an open cholecystectomy with a subcostal incision? Yes, but I personally, I don't have any experience with um, uh, open cholecystectomies and uh, thoracic wall blocks. But in general, if you perform a low subserratus block, you will reach the lateral cutaneous intercostal nerves of that area. So this could help for a subcostal incision if this incision is lateral enough. However, 15 milliliters, it's rather low. As I said earlier, the amount of spread is a direct result of the volume that you use. So if this... Um, Twitter uh, question Oscar did not achieve the expected results with 15 milliliters. My advice would be to increase the volume to have the, um, the maybe re the required result. Sounds great. Barbara, this has been fantastic. Is there anything we didn't cover that you want to say before we move on? Um, I think we covered quite a lot. I think for people who are not into thoracic wall blocks, this might already be a lot of information. So please <laughs> to have the, the three blocks that are most important, we, we will add some videos. So YouTube videos, so you can learn them. There will be some literature if you're interested to read your way into this whole uh, thoracic wall block um, story. And I also have a poster that I made um, together with B Brown that has the, the, the most frequently used thoracic wall blocks for breast cancer surgery. And it's just freely available. You can download it, you can print it, hang it in your hospital and just uh, learn yourself uh, how to perform these techniques. Fantastic. All right, let's turn to the part of our show where we make random recommendations to you. What would you have for our audience? Any random recommendation you think people should check out? I would just recommend you to come and visit our beautiful country. We have wonderful cities. We have Bruges, we have Antwerp, Ghent, Brussels, many more, and we have wonderful food. You should really try our Moulfrit, which is a, a classical in our country. So uh, we're looking forward to um, to meet you here. That sounds amazing. Tell me what that is, that dish that you just said. What is it like? It's like a, um, a seashell food, how you call it, a moule, with, with French fries. Oh, like mussels. Mussels, yes. And a moule yeah. oh, is like the yeah. French the French uh, version to say it. Mussels from Brussels, but they're not the person, but the food. <laughs> yeah, Belgium is famous for their mussels and and um, and French fried dishes. Uh, so that sounds so good, and is making me want to have one right now. <laughs> Always welcome. Um, but one day, maybe we'll do a live podcast from Belgium, and then we'll have an excuse to um, to eat a lot of that wonderful food. I think that's a really good idea. We should do the podcast on the mussels and fruit. <laughs> That works for me. Um, well, thank you. And my uh, recommendation, so I, for for literally for years, people have been recommending to me a TV show called The Great British Baking Show. And I have, I love to cook, I love to bake, and I've continually wanted to check it out and I keep not making it. And so finally, 
over the past month or so, I've started watching some of the Great British Baking Show. It is so much fun. It's just a great show, as people kept telling me. And I'll tell you, it's also my kids. I have um, an eight-year-old daughter and a seven-year-old daughter and a two-year-old daughter, but the two-year-old's not watching it. But occasionally, I'll watch it with my eight- and seven-year-old, and they really get into it, too. And they they love to see how these things are made and to see who's going to win each week. And it is just a blast. So uh, I, it, whether you like to bake or not, I there's a few more enjoyable all around kind of just enjoyable shows out there, I think, than the great British baking show. So if you haven't checked it out, I recommend doing so. All right, Barbara, this has been absolutely fantastic. Thank you again for making the time and uh, for sharing your wisdom on the topic. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I had a great time. All right. That was fantastic. How fun to have Barbara all the way from Belgium. And she is really an expert on all of this. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, com, where you can learn from what other people have to say. And you can leave comments that other people can learn from. Please uh, take some time to do that. You can also join the conversation on Twitter. You can follow me at, at jwolpaw and the podcast at ACRAC Podcast. There is also a Facebook group, the ACRAC Facebook group, which you can join as well. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. And if you're interested in supporting the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. You can, of course, make donations anytime by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC as well. Thank you so much to those who are already patrons and have already made donations. Big thank you, as always, to Kimia Cooley, our fantastic intern, and to Dr. Brian Park and April Liu for the wonderful work they're doing putting together some outlines for some of the episodes. And, of course, a big thank you to Dr. Dennis Quo, who created the original ACRAC music for ACRAC. And you can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right. That is it for today for the ACRAC podcast and Dr. Barbara Versick. I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.